we want to, I want to start sharing with you about strengthening the foundations. I've helped the Lord speak this year about foundations. The Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So foundations are important to a life with God. Your foundations are invisible and unseen. And your foundations are very important because what you believe in your heart, the belief systems you have, the attitudes you have, whatever we carry in our heart, that's how our life will flow. And even when it comes to your walk with God, if strong foundations are not laid, you can't really build very strong. And so in the building of the temple in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 5 verse 17, it said, the king commanded that they bring great stones, costly stones, carved stones to lay the foundation of the house of the Lord. So clearly in the Old Testament, a huge emphasis was placed on the foundations. Foundations are unseen. They're invisible. They're below the surface. But the foundations are what the building rests on. And if the foundations are not strong, or they're not aligned, or they have fractures, then, or they're not even put in properly, or they're not there at all, the house will not be stable. And everything is foundation. So whatever we're trying to build, there's a foundation for. If you're trying to build your life, you build it on certain belief systems. If you're trying to build a marriage, you will build it on belief systems and the ways that you, and values and the way you conduct your marriage. And uh, people don't realize that, so they want to have a wedding, but they don't realize weddings one day, a marriage is a lifetime, and you've got to work and build it. Good families and good marriages are not an accident, someone is building. You're not seeing what they're doing, but there's some fruit to show for it. A business needs certain foundations in it. A church must have foundations. Everything has foundations. You build a team, there's some foundations to your team. And we don't always see what the foundations are. So you look at a team and it's doing really well, you can't always see what it is that makes it work. A lot of people look at what we do here and they have no real concept of what makes it work. And so they look and they find everything, all kinds of things that are wrong and all kinds of things that are lacking, but don't see what is there that makes it work. There are foundations, there are certain things. And so God wanting to shift His church is wanting to move His church into what we would call apostolic and prophetic foundations. That's different from a church having a strong pastoral teaching foundation. Both are necessary, but the apostolic prophetic foundation places a high emphasis on heaven's priorities and the supernatural dimension becoming reality. Without that, you have lots of things that are under control and managed, but they don't fulfill God's purpose. And so we want to move forward, and that requires shifting some things. Shifting things which are foundations, or enlarging or strengthening the foundations of our life. So for most who have been walking with the Lord for a while, all that's needed for God to build bigger is that the foundations be strengthened, and sometimes they be enlarged. So in a natural building, if you want to put another story on it, you do have to check the foundations. So one of the things to understand is that foundational to building anything with God is revelation. Revelation that comes out of relationship. You can't build on second-hand information. You can't build anything godly or anything that will last in God without revelation. And revelation that flows from relationships. Either relationship directly with God which brings a download of revelation into your life, or relationship with ministries that God has set in place 
that open up the Word and release revelation to you. But whatever it is, we must build on revelation. Let me give, give you a few scriptures related to that. And uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, for example, it says, Jesus said this, He's being attacked by the devil. The foundations of his ministry are being formed. And how are they being formed? He's had the anointing. But before he goes into public ministry, before he manifests power, he must have the quality of his life tested. So he has a period in the wilderness where his foundations are tested. The foundations in this case being the whole underlying motivation for his life and ministry. They are put to test. He has 40 days fasting, and in that time he's tested, and there's three major testings recorded, each one significant. And I won't go into them all, but one of them is very clearly said, and that is the temptation to use the power of God for his own needs. If we want to be a church that experiences the power of God, you must come to the issue of deciding whose power it is and what the power is for. I have had years uh, working with people to help them understand the ways of the Spirit and how to flow in the Spirit, I've come to realize that without the foundations of motivation and relationship being properly laid, no one really continues to operate in that dimension. I know how to activate people. I can do it very easy, do it in the morning, do it in a session. But what I have found is people re seldom retain that, and there's a reason for it. It's because there are some foundational things not laid in their life in terms of relationship with God. And that's what Jesus said. He was tempted to use power, kingdom power, miracle power for his own needs. And he answered it like this, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word which is proceeding out of the mouth of God. In other words, the foundation for the supernatural life is an ongoing flow of revelation that governs how you live your life. Isn't that interesting? The word he uses there, every word proceeding from God. So if we're going to live a strong life, we have to be in a flow of God speaking to us. The voice of God speaking to you is foundational to living a powerful Christian life. It's an absolute foundation. In fact, Jesus pointed out in Matthew 7 verse 25, he said, uh, he's using a picture to describe two men building a house. And uh, you remember the story, so I won't go into it. I'll just give you the key, key headline in it. And it's this, Jesus said, the one who hears my words and then acts on my words and puts them into practice in his life. That's the man who built his house upon his rock. And when the storms of life came, then he stayed strong and the house stayed firm in that place because it was on a strong foundation. So notice that good people and bad people, good Christians and, and poorly hand, uh, behaving Christians, all experience storms and winds and rain and other kinds of things that test our life. When a time of testing and pressure comes, all it does is reveal what foundations you have in your life. That's why whenever uh, I'm counseling anyone about a major decision and they've thought through the whole pros and cons, whatever, said the one thing you need is a word from God. Because in the time when the storms come, the pressures come, the doubts come, the opposition comes, you will have a foundation to stand upon. If you're making a major decision in your life, make no major decision without spending time in the presence of God, gaining the voice of God on your decision. 
If you have emotions tied up in that decision, you probably won't hear the voice of God, get counsel from those who can help you. Okay, so hearing the voice of God, speaking the word that God spoke, responding to what God said is foundational to living a life that's strong. And so revelation's foundational for the supernatural. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 16. He asked Simon a question, verse 15, who do you say I am? He's asking him a question. Simon said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 70, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjoma. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter. Something has happened. He's just given a name change. Why did he give him a name change? What just happened that caused him to change the name? He has received revelation from the father. He's received personal revelation. And immediately that he's received that revelation, God says, Jesus says to him, now I call you Peter, because on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What he's doing is he's naming him now from Simon, which means one who hears, to now Peter, which means rock. Why is he saying that? Because he said, your natural father named you Simon, but I'm calling you Peter because now you have revelation from heaven. It has changed who you are. Now I'm calling you according to God's purpose for you. You will be a builder. You will build with revelation. So when we receive revelation of who Jesus Christ is, and we confess it with our mouth, our destiny changes immediately. We begin to align our life with God. Heaven is released. Notice what he says on this rock. On revelation, I will build. And the gates of hell, which is a spiritual power controlling men and holding them in bondage. He said, spiritual powers will not prevail against the church I'm building. Why? Because it's built on a flow from heaven into the earth. A flow of revelation. If you want to deal with some of the challenges, the pressures that you face in life. Many of them have spiritual powers behind them. It requires revelation. It requires you hear God speak. And as you speak what God speaks, you are identifying yourself as a child of God and making way for His power to flow father to son from heaven to earth to manifest His life through you. God builds on revelation. Now, the problem with revelation is this. It requires a response. And the response you make always indicates what's really going on in your heart. And I want to show you that revelation, when God starts to show new things to you, it will challenge your existing patterns of thought and belief. So I know people say, I want to go on with God. But going on with God does require openness to receive new revelation, new insights. And when you receive it, it will challenge how you do life. So we love to come into a meeting and be blessed. God doesn't want you blessed. He wants you to become the blessing. And to become the blessing, God let the word change you. Now, what happens is when we receive, often we receive some, and then we say no to others. Notice what Peter does. Now, Jesus just said, whoa, I'm changing the way I deal with you. You're called Peter. Now, man, I can build with you. You're getting revelation. Then, verse 21, Jesus begins to show his disciples, including people, him, Peter, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised the first day. Then Peter, the man that's going to be uh, 
uh, a person who's potentially able to build the house of God. Peter calls him aside and says, now listen to me. He began to tell him off. Pity yourself, Lord. This will not happen to you. And now Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now what has just gone on then? What just happened? You see, if you look through it, I, I won't develop it too, so I want to get on to Paul's encounter. But, but if you just look what's happened, Peter has received revelation from the Father, and he's commended, and he begins to change in his walk with the Lord, and then straight away he gets another flow of revelation. What was the second flow of revelation? First flow of revelation is who Jesus is. Second flow was the path of the cross. Now notice, you've got a sandwich here. You've got a sandwich of revelation. The first bit is who Jesus is. The second bit, the meat, is the kingdom of heaven coming into the earth, God dismantling spiritual powers, the work of God taking place on the earth, captives set free, healings, deliverance, and so on. The second part is of the sandwich, the other bit of bread, is about the cross. You can't have one without the other. If you want the supernatural, you've got to have the cross because the other side of the cross is the resurrection power of God. So Jesus said, the first bit is knowing me. Second bit is being able to understand the cross, the power of the cross, the way of the cross, the resurrection power that lies the other side of it. And Jesus, Peter immediately said, stop, that's enough. Don't talk to me about crosses, suffering, inconvenience. We're on to ruling and reigning here. We're on to deliverance, healings, big meetings, money, all kinds of things here. We're on to the great life here, and you're talking about a cross. Just stop it. Now, you notice he's received another flow of revelation. And that revelation is about the life of God has the cross at the center of it. Love always sacrifices. Love always gives. And the other side of giving and sacrifice is resurrection power of God. Now notice what happens, immediately it challenges Peter's belief system. Revelation challenges how you think and do life. Peter was looking for position. He was looking for a role in the kingdom. What he didn't understand was how God wanted him to get there. And when the way was made clear to him, he reacted to it. Often, we say, I want to go on with God. I want to be used by God. God, But then when God begins to show us the path, then we react. And why do we react? Because we disagree with God. We just don't think like He thinks. God says His ways are higher and His thoughts are higher. So re- revelation produces reactions from our belief systems. In Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter gets some more revelation and he still reacts. He's having a time of worship one day, and he gets a vision, an open vision, Acts chapter 10. And in that vision, he sees heaven open up, and he sees a, a, a cloth coming down. He sees unclean animals on it, and God says, rise and eat. He says, oh, not me. I don't eat unclean things. And three times the vision comes. Three times God says the same thing. He says the same thing back. Not so, Lord. Sorry, I disagree. Now, Notice, here's the man who's filled with the Holy Spirit by this time, has been doing all kinds of things by this time, has seen many miracles, and when God tries to expand his vision and thinking and kingdom perspective, not so. His first response is to run his revelation he's receiving past his experience and to say, no. That happens to us too. 
God starts to talk about finance. Of all the people, God ought to know about finance. But the moment we start to talk about what God has to say, no, not so. I have a better way. Well, good on you. Well done. That God's way is a higher way and it works better. But you've got your way. That's good. Good on you for your way. But God's got a better way and a bigger way. You've just got to decide whether you'll move in Revelation and move to a bigger way or not. It's always produces that. Now, notice that God was trying to show him in that vision, the heart of God was for all nations of the world. And Peter said, not so, just the Jews. So Peter's revelation of the bigness of God immediately was met with resistance from him because of the belief systems he had. So revelation will challenge you. One of the things that's hard for Christians to get a hold of is just how big God is and how big his heart is, and how his love for people, his love for all kinds of people, transvestites, prostitutes, drug addicts, people in far nations, people in poor nations, he loves them all. But we would say, well, not so. Let's just focus on ourselves and our needs. God wants us to have a big vision. You need to be a part of the big vision that God has. God's big vision is the world. Oh, don't you love that? It's the world. See? It's the whole of our community. It's big. It's big. Oh, uh, yeah, right. See? And so because we, we filter everything through our own belief system, we find ourselves fighting with the bigness of what God wants us to be and to do. People want a little church. Where'd that come from? It came from little me. It's really true. A mindset that filters the bigness of God and brings it all down to, well, how will this get me ahead? And what's in this for me? And well, I don't know. There's new people coming in and I don't like that. I don't like the way they're dressed. Listen, that's all nonsense and immaturity. Grow up, expand. But that's my seat that they're sitting in. Really? Come on, this is the kind of thing that goes on. You know it goes on. When God expands His vision and expands what we want to do, immediately we struggle with it. Struggle with it straight away. See? Now, of course, you know, we know God loves the world. But suppose we just, suppose one day we just invite in and bring in a whole lot of friends. And we've got a whole row sitting up here. And they decide, because I've invited them to, to sit right up in the front row. And they're all from one of the gangs. Chains and helmets and all the kind of stuff, and behind them is a whole row of transvestites. Now we've got the whole church in a turmoil. It's true. And the turmoil is all about your beliefs. You either say, whoa, look at that, yeah, God, come on, save them. Or you say, do I hug them or not? Come on, that's what goes on. It's all about internal structures. And revelation, the voice of God, calls for change in internal structures of believing and the way we operate our life. And, and it, it calls us to come alive, to change. I love it. God's just challenging me right now, this season. Oh, I'm just, expand, Lord. 
help me understand. So let's kind of look in Acts chapter 9 have a look at Paul, because Paul got a big expansion. Now, I don't know what you'd do with Paul. What would you do with a murderer? What would you do with a persecutor of the church? What would you do with someone who broke into the homes of your friends, dragged them out, and tortured them till they rejected Christ? What would you do? That's what Paul did. Bible tells us, Acts 26, what he did. He hounded the believers. He went into their homes, broke into their homes. Men and women took them in chains and tortured them until they renounced Christ. Many of them he put to death in a cruel way, stoning that man. Now, what would you do with such a man? How would you even pray? Now, let's be real about this. God, give him what he deserves. Fill him with worms like you filled Herod with worms. Just do something to punish him. Make his eyeballs fall out. Do something. And that's how we think. We think, well, God should punish them. And then I hear people saying, you know, there's a huge upheaval in America at the moment because someone came out on the air and said, well, Haiti deserved that. You know, they were all involved in this worship and stuff and false gods, therefore they deserved the earthquake. That's not God. That's not God. That's not the God I serve. Not our God. It's a different God. It's a God of religion that punishes people. Okay? And so we've got to really understand the God. We said, let's have a look in Acts chapter 9. So here it is, and there it is, Paul. Acts chapter 9. Saul, his name was Saul then, so he's about to have a life-changing experience. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest, and he asked letters from them of the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any were of the way, that's Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's not content just to create havoc in Jerusalem. He's wanting to go to other cities and drag the Christians back to Jerusalem, torture them to death. And as, they, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Hard for you to kick against the goads. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Arise, go to the city. It'll be told you what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. That's freaky. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. They led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. He was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. Arise, go to the seat called Straight, and quiet the house of Judas. This is good words of knowledge here. For one Saul of Tarsus, he's praying, and in a vision he's seen a man called Ananias coming, putting hands on him so he might receive his sight. Lord, I've heard he's been a very nasty man to your saints. Now here he's got authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Go. God doesn't argue. Just go. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear his, my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went into the, and entered the house and laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, there's another word of knowledge, has sent me. Apostello sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Isn't that great, eh? So 
God is about to deal with Saul. Now, you've got to realize Saul's background. And one of the things that we have is our background is great, and yet our background is the launching pad for life, yet our background can be a great hindrance to us. Now, here's Saul's background, his foundation. It's spelled out in Philippians 3, verse few verses. First of all, from his birthright. So he's born into the right kind of family. He's born into Israel. He's born into the tribe of Benjamin. Jacob's his ancestor. He's entitled to the blessings. His father's a Jew. His mother's a Jew. He is pure Jew. Entitled to everything God's got. Second thing about him is his education. Highly trained, highly educated, memorized great portions of the Bible, probably the first five books. Trained Anna Gamaliel, who was the high, uh, the uh, leading teacher of the day. He was highly educated man. In terms of his uh, church commitment, he was abs- and his life's uh, church commitment. He was absolutely zealous for God. Kept the law to every detail, tithing, fasting, everything it said in the law. He kept everything. He was, according to the law, blameless. He led what you call a model life. However, his foundations were wrong. He based his walking with God on the law. His foundation was wrong. And so now Jesus encounters him to bring about a change because his foundation's wrong. So what is his foundation? Well, he encounters the God of glory. He's, he's going down the road, and the Bible, it's the middle of the day, it says in Acts 26, and he says there was a light shone greater than the sun. Well, I don't know who's been in the, any Middle East country when the sun's come out in the middle of the day. It's very bright, extremely bright, and the temperature's about 40, and the, the glory he saw was brighter than that. They all, they fell down, the whole lot of them, whoosh, over. Why do people fall down? They can't stand up. They fell over. Then he heard God speaking to him, and God speaks to him. Now, you notice this. His foundations for a ministry life of serving God were inadequate. They were surrounded, they were based on the law. Now, get this. God does not build on the law, rules. God builds on relationship. You are either going to walk with God by keeping rules or walk with God by relationship, but you can't do both. If you walk with God by keeping rules, you're not walking by faith. If you walk by God in relationship and revelation, you live a different life and a higher life than you would under the law. So that's the problem. Now, the law focuses on rules. So you either keep the rules or you break the rule. If you keep the rule, you're proud because you keep the rule. If you break the rule, then you're a sinner and you need to be punished. So when you live under rules, Punishment is inevitable consequence of not keeping the rules. So when, now get this, when people operate under law, they always have to punish people who are guilty because that's what the law requires. See, notice what it says in the law. That's not saying that there isn't punishment. There is punishment for evildoers. There's no doubt. There's a law of sowing and reaping, and then there's an eternal punishment. But you'll find that a common trait of people who operate in legalism or under the letter of the law is that they observe, criticize, and judge the behaviors of others and to become a judge of the law. And the Bible says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there is a purpose for the law. When you read the law, it just tells you your sin. But it doesn't help you. It doesn't make you a better person. The law is to bring us to Christ so we may be made right with God and walk by faith and love. Different deal. So here's the thing. The the law was meant 
to show us what we're like so we would come to Christ and walk with God by faith. You can't walk under the law and legalism and walk by faith. They are opposite to one another. It's one or the other. So, he's challenged completely. Now, notice this, the, one of the fruits of his walking under the law. Notice this, breathing out threats and murder. Now, here's an amazing thing. Here's a man whose life was faultless in every regard, but notice this, he's actually living on hate and murder and control. And it's showing in he attacks the body of Christ, murdering, threatening, hurting, and harming the body of Christ. Jesus wants to confront that behavior. He has no idea what he's really doing. In fact, what you could call him, you could call him a jihadist. Because everywhere he went, there was havoc. Now, notice this. He thinks he's serving God. He thinks he's doing right. He thinks he's pleasing God. He does not even know God properly. He's operating out of law. And so, that requires that the things that he thinks disagree with the law, he punishes. So, he's now can justify killing, threatening, manipulating, controlling, violating people, breaking up families. He can justify it because of the law. That is definitely what happens when you live on the law. And you see, the Bible calls us the body of Christ. Now, we say, well, we'd never do that. But I know plenty of people who breathe anger against members of the body of Christ. Feelings of hate, anger, bitterness. Don't tell me you're not breathing out threats and murder. Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. See? See, we we forget that the body of Christ, Jesus identifies with His people. So this is the shock Paul's about to get. And here's how God shocks him. Very, very simple. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He just puts one question to him, and it shakes his whole foundations. Notice several things about it now. First thing is he has a sovereign encounter. He meets with the Lord. He has an experience of God. And God knows what kind of experience you need. This one's a confrontational experience. But you notice he gets... God ministers to him in grace. You would think that God would say, you, mirror, I'm going to get you. He didn't say anything like that. He just says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Ask him a question. Notice how God deals with him at a personal relational level because God is a personal God. And notice the next thing there. It says, God calls his name, personal name, Saul, Saul. And whenever God uses the name twice, it's because he's about to bring you into a major change in your life. So every time in the Bible God called a person twice, it's because He's changing the way He connects, relates. They're about to enter a new season in their life. You go through it in the Old Testament. Abraham, Abraham. God stops him in his tracks and then establishes covenant, brings him into a realm of blessing. Moses, Moses. God stops him in his tracks and raises him out of being in the desert to become a deliverer for a nation. Samuel, Samuel, God stops him in his tracks and raises him up to become a prophet to a nation. So it goes on through the Bible. Martha, Martha, God stops her in her tracks, ships her out of working and busyness and overwhelmed into relationship and listening to God. Simon, Simon, 
God stops him in his tracks and challenges him about the instability of his life. He's about to have a major fall. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. God, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. It's about to make the biggest mistake of its history and come into a legacy of destruction. Saul, Saul. Now, isn't this an interesting thing? That when God puts his spirit inside you, it cries, Abba, Father. Why? Because our relationships change. So whenever God uses names twice, he's trying to get your attention, trying to tell you you're about to have a major change. And so how God gets them to change is asking a question. Now here's an interesting challenge, see? How, how do you get someone to change? One of the things that God does, he asks questions. And all through the Bible, God's asked questions. In other words, he doesn't put a pressure on them and squeeze them outside. He gets into their heart and says, and he asks a question. Not because he doesn't know the answer, because he wants you to think. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. Oh, why are you hiding? I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit of the tree? Now, notice God just asked simple questions that really probe and open his life up. See, he, he, he does that all through the Bible. Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? Ah, and he's forced to think about and expose what he really believes. God uses questions to open up our belief system. God uses it all the time. Simon, do you love me? That's a good question. And what's Simon going to say? What's he going to say? He just betrayed the Lord, and Jesus doesn't mention a word, but just says, do you love me? What must he be thinking on inside? I don't know whether I really love him or not. He's thinking about, really, yeah, yeah, yes, I do love you. Okay, feed my lamb. So God uses questions to get us to think on the inside, to reflect on who we are. Then God gives them a revelation. I'm Jesus, and you're persecuting me. Did you realize that when you speak against another Christian, another believer, you criticize them, run them down, you are criticizing Jesus and affecting a relationship with him? Did you realize that when you gossip against another believer, you are ruining your relationship with him, with the Lord? You are sowing seeds of destruction in your life. Do you know when you judge another believer, you are sowing judgment for your own life. But when you show mercy, you're sowing mercy for your own life. You see, we cannot separate Jesus from the people that follow him. You can't. Well, I just want to relate to Jesus in heaven. I'm sorry, but he's put people here for you to love. Well, I love Jesus, but I don't like these people. The, the substance of your love for God is manifested in the connection and love you have for people. It's easy to say, I love someone I can't see, but what about the person next to you? See, Jesus totally identifies with his people. If you did this to this, uh, one of these least of my brethren, you did it to me. You show kindness to a believer, you're showing it to the Lord. You help a believer, you're helping the Lord. You help a believer in another nation, you're helping the Lord. When you abuse, criticize, mistreat someone who's a believer, you are actually destroying your relationship with God. That's the reality. Yet we do it so easily. And God, so God challenged. Now, you can imagine being asked this. Why are you persecuting me? Hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not persecuting you. I'm really on your side, God. It's all these Christians I'm after. Who are you anyway? I am Jesus. <laughs> no. All his beliefs are now being challenged by the revelation of who Jesus is. And then he tells them, what, you are persecuting me. 
His whole life and the basis of his life is sown into upheaval. He thought he's doing God a favor. Can you imagine what he would feel? In a moment, the murders, the bloodshed, the violence, everything he'd done in his life, on the name, in the name of God, he suddenly realizes he was wrong, totally wrong. Yet he thought he was right and justified himself. Believers hurt one another continually and justify themselves. I'm entitled to do that. But God says, not so. Not so. Not so. So what else is God? Now here the interesting thing is, now God could have healed him. Why is it that the next thing, now you notice we're talking about a change. God says, I want you to, he said, what do I do now then? Lord, what do I do? He said, okay, rise, go to the city, and then I'll tell you the next step. Notice God does not give revelation in its fullness. He gives you a piece to act on. So he's asked a question, given him a bit of revelation, then he's given him something to do. Just go to the city and wait. He has to sit there for three days. He's fasting and praying. The man who was spiritually blind is now physically blind, blinded by the glory. And what is he waiting for? He's waiting to submit himself to a representative of the very people he was killing. Can you imagine what that would be like? Because God showed him in a vision that a prophet would come and he would submit to the prophet. Now you'd think, well, I just want to ask you, God, oh, you know I love you and I've really been passionate serving you. I really want you to just heal me right now. He says, no, you will submit yourself to apostolic and prophetic ministry over your life. And that will be the way you'll move into your next season. And so Ananias came to him and Ananias laid hands on him. Ananias flowed in revelation, knew exactly what house, what street, who he lived with, what was going on, what had happened to him, his current condition, what he needed. God had shown it to him all. And then he turns up there, he lays hands on him, and then prophetically imparts destiny into his life. Isn't it interesting? This is how God changes us. First of all, we experience him, and the experience begins to challenge the foundations of what we believe. Then he gives us the next little bit, next little step. And then he requires that we be open for others to minister to us because no one makes it alone. No one makes it just relating to Jesus. We have to have a body of people to be a part of. You notice here as we just finish up now that God used a prophet to get him his sight back, to get him water baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. Then God used an apostle to connect him into the church to the other apostles. And then he spent time re-establishing his foundations. The amazing thing about Paul is afterwards he says, he calls himself, he's apostle of grace. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. This is the man that wrote, it's not by, it's by grace you are saved through faith, not of any works. That's the man who said that. That's the man who stood up to Peter and said, Peter, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're going back to the law. God delivered us from the law that we could walk in faith and relationship and love. Don't you tell people they've got to do this and do that and do right before they're going to be right with God. That's the man that God made him an apostle of grace. The murderer, the one who least deserve it, becomes the greatest apostle and the apostle of grace in the New Testament. Here's the thing. What is it that's foundational in your belief system that God wants to shift? One area is your understanding of grace. We are saved just by the goodness of God. We walk in the goodness of God. We live by the goodness of God. And we must learn to extend the goodness of God to others. The law brings death, judgment, accusation, legalism, uh, all kinds of things against people. It kills. 
By the letter of the law, people are killed. But the Spirit of God brings life. Let me finish with this thought. Paul was eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's another tree God calls us to eat from. It's called the tree of life. The tree of knowledge of good and evil inevitably ends up in knowing what's right, knowing what's wrong, being correct, this one's right, this one's wrong, and it brings death. The, law, the tree of life comes out of relationship, and its primary concern is not being right or wrong. Its concern is about life and death. Under the law, the adulteress was put to death. Under grace, she was forgiven, restored, and given room to get on with her life. Under the law, people are punished. Under grace, people find forgiveness and repentance because of the goodness of God. What operates in your life? Grace and truth? Or is it legalism? People need to be punished. People don't deserve that. What they really deserve is this. See, that thinking is embedded. Don't think it isn't in us. Don't think it's not present here. Paul wrote to the Galatian church. He said, you've come under a spiritual influence and you now become legalistic. Let me ask you this. How did you get saved? Was it by doing good things or was it just by the hearing of faith? How do you get miracles? How do you move in the power of God? Is it by working hard? No, no, no. Is it by being correct? No, no, no. It's actually by faith. Hearing the voice of God. Of all the things we must do is hear the voice of God. You have a problem, hear the voice of God. You have a situation, hear the voice of God. You have something that you're facing, listen for the voice of God. Be led by the Spirit, because those led by the Spirit have come to maturity. Father, we just thank you right now for your great grace. What an amazing God. If a murderer, a violator of men and women and families and households, could be chosen to be the greatest apostle of all time, how easy it is, Lord, for you to extend grace to us and to help us. We thank you, Lord. Listen, while our eyes are closed and heads are bowed, is there any person here who's never come to Jesus Christ? You may be a religious person. Go to church, do good things, try to keep yourself right. That doesn't make God pleased with you. What pleases God is faith, trusting Him. Jesus came to forgive us and to show us what God is like. But it requires a personal response of trusting Him. To trust Him, not our own works. Him and what He did will save us. It's His life that will save us. Is there any person here today who's ready to receive Jesus, to become a Christian, to give your heart to God? You may be part of some organization that does good works. That won't get you to heaven. Only a faith in Jesus Christ will do that. You may have tried to live a good life. That won't get you to heaven. Only a faith in Jesus Christ will do that. You may say, well, I'm not doing so bad. I don't do very many bad things. I try to live a good life. <clears throat> that won't get you to heaven. Only a relationship with God.